There is an epidemic sweeping across our nation's churches. That is the shrinking population of their volunteers. Alarming, to say the least. To investigate the impact, we set up our cameras, removed all the volunteers, and followed a man we'll call Pete as he attended a local worship service without any volunteers. It started out like any other Sunday. Pete arrived five minutes late, as he always does. He assumed a greeter would open the door. He assumed wrong. Have you ever had church coffee that's been sitting around for a week? Well, Pete has. Deciding life was about more than just coffee, Pete finally answered the call to the mission field. But there was nobody picking up on the other end. To further complicate matters, Pete had to stoop down and get his own bulletin. He even had to hold and comfort a tiny human that he didn't understand. In fact, Pete didn't understand any of it. So, how can we as a church body keep this from happening? Seems there's a very simple fix. It takes a little bit of time and a little bit of effort. So won't you do it for your church? Do it for yourself. Wait! God bless him. Volunteer for Pete's sake. I was a little nervous that maybe a group of you would be getting up looking for your cars out there, making sure they weren't being towed. Oh, I saw that. Couldn't help it. Couldn't help it. Just, But we do. We do definitely need more and more volunteers. Uh, please make sure that you see those who are involved. Kristen does a great job with her children's ministry and CJ with our, with our teens and our 20-somethings. But uh, to be honest, we need uh, volunteers in every area. So if you can... If you can volunteer, please, please let us know so that we can plug you in and uh, we can all work together to do what God would have us to do. We are in the book of Philippians. This is the last Sunday I'm going to say that for a while. Uh, we've been there for the last couple of months and we're finishing it up this morning. Philippians chapter 4, uh, the last few paragraphs, uh, verses 8 through 23. And uh, we'll be reading that a little bit later in the service. Um, before we get started, let's, uh, let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we give you praise, we give you honor, we give you glory for all that you do, for all that you have provided for us. You have provided most of all the gift of your Son, Jesus, and because of Jesus we can sing praises and we can laugh and we can look forward to the future with hope. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from every sin. Thank you, Father. And Father, we thank you for the blessings that go beyond even our salvation because you continue to work in our lives day by day. And you're certainly working in our lives this very day. 
showing us what you would have us to do, how you would have us to grow, preparing us for what's ahead. You know what's ahead, Father. You've called us here this morning because you wanted us to hear your word. And so, Father, as we listen to what you have to say, we've already, Father, been encouraged by a time of worship, and we pray that you have been blessed by that worship. And Father, as we continue on now in a study of your word, speak to us. Show us what you'd have us to do. Thank you, Father, that your word never returns to you empty. It always accomplishes the purpose for which you have sent it. So may it accomplish your purpose this day. Thank you, Father. We're ready to listen. Speak to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. How much is enough? You watch TV, you view various ads, listen to the constant drone of commercial after commercial, and you'll soon be convinced that no matter how much you have, how full your closets, how much you've got jammed into every nook and cranny of your house, it's never new enough, it's never good enough, it's never enough. Whatever you don't have, you'll soon be convinced you can't live without. We have an entire industry, a multi-billion dollar industry, devoted to nothing more than storing the stuff that we don't have enough room for in our closets, our basements, our garages, our crawl spaces. Our national obsession to accumulate was summed up some years ago uh, in a bumper sticker. He who dies with the most toys wins. And the sad truth is, even with all this stuff, we're still not content. During a visit to a psychiatric hospital, a visitor asked the director what criteria determines a patient ought to be institutionalized. And the director responded, well, we fill a bathtub up with water, and then we offer the patient a a teaspoon, a teacup, and a bucket. And we ask the patient to empty that bathtub. Oh, I understand, said the visitor. A normal person would just choose the bucket because it's larger than the spoon or the cup, to which the director responded, no, a normal person would just pull the drain plug. (laughs) In a nation such as ours, a normal person ought to be able to look at all the prosperity that we have and see a blessing to be celebrated, a blessing to be shared. Instead, the more we have, the more we seem to want. Our normal isn't exactly normal. As someone put it, we spend money we do not have to buy things we do not need to impress people we don't even like. Such obsession is anything but normal. It's closer to insanity. But I want to point out to you this morning, this insane drive to possess is not uniquely American. Nor is it new. Remember 3,400 years ago. When God gave his Ten Commandments to Moses, you realize one-fifth of them have to do with a wrong attitude towards stuff. Uh, He had to write it in stone. Don't steal, don't covet. Fourteen centuries later, Jesus warned his followers to 
avoid the all-too-common trap of wasting time and energy, and he uses the word running after possessions, running after wealth. We just wear ourselves out. Most of Jesus' parables dealt with money, both its use and abuse. It's a theme that runs throughout the New Testament. And why not? Our discontent for what we have or don't have has been the cause of more fights, more conflicts, more divorces, more church splits, more wars than anything else. The danger is always lurking. If your contentment is determined by, by what you possess, it will not be long till what you possess possesses you. So, is it any wonder that Paul described true contentment as a secret? It's a secret, he says. A secret that he knew the answer to. See, most don't have a clue how to get this elusive thing called contentment. The real secret to being content has nothing to do with what you possess, with the stuff you have or don't have. True contentment comes down to having your life right with God. Listen to Paul's final few paragraphs to the Philippian church, beginning with verse 8 of chapter 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, Abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable, pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The secret of being content, it begins in the mind with right thinking. Paul starts by telling the church something that sounds relatively easy rather than 
give a to-do list of sacrifices or complicated tasks. It gave them some things to, well, to think about. Verse 8, whatever is true. Hey, guys, my mic's cutting out. Just use this one. Interruption for technical difficulties. I always know when my team is back there with a worried look on their face. There's something going on. Okay. We'll do it the old-fashioned way. I guess the old-fashioned way would be shouting, but... Now, he talks about these things that we are to think about, and that becomes extremely important that we focus on them, and yet as we read this... We think to ourselves, well, now, wait a minute, this sounds easy, doesn't it? I mean, all you have to do is just think on these things. But is it really all that easy? Be honest. Do any of you struggle with your, with your thought life? Do any of you struggle with things like fear or guilt or shame or anger or Bitterness, jealousy, lust, envy, despair, depression, worry, anxiety. Do any of these things ring a bell? Paul understood that the primary battlefield for the enemy is not the government, it's not education, it's not the entertainment industry, it's not even the church. Rather, it's in the mind and heart of people, all people. You realize before a word is spoken, there is first a thought. Now, sometimes it's a really quick thought, but it's a thought nonetheless. Our actions are always determined by what happens between our ears. Our enemy is not a flesh-and-blood kind of enemy. He is an unseen spiritual enemy, waging war on the inside, using Things like our memories, our motives, uh, things we thought we heard, things we imagined that we saw. And he uses all of these things to plant things like doubt and division, fear and distrust in our hearts. And he does that so he can drive a wedge between ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ, between ourselves and God. So Paul says, Christian, Be careful what you put in your mind. Be careful what you focus your attention upon. It can and often will be used by the enemy. You know that old computer adage? It's just as true with that computer in our heads. Garbage in, garbage out. It's essential not to give the enemy any free access to an unguarded area of life, particularly the mind. He will take advantage given even the slightest opening. 
in uh, Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, chapter, uh, chapter 10, beginning with verse 3. Listen to what he says. He says, for, for though we walk in the flesh, we walk in this world in bodies of flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We're not waging war according to worldly standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, even as I read that, especially that last line, my guess is that many are sitting there thinking, yeah, I really struggle with that one. That one seems tough. For some of you, it's been a long struggle that you had at, before you ever came to Christ. For others, even though you may have been a Christian a long time, there are certain strongholds that are entrenched. You feel hopeless. You feel helpless. Well, first of all, I want to remind you that if you're being bombarded with discouragement that says you just, you'll never beat this, you, you will never overcome this, you may as well just forget it and just learn to live with it. If you're being bombarded with that, that is not the Holy Spirit doing that. Because there's always hope in Christ, along with grace and forgiveness. His mercies are new every morning, including this one. His grace is more powerful than any weapon that Satan can forge against us. So let me encourage you, if you're struggling, and if you're struggling in this area of the mind, and what you're thinking about, if it seems as if Satan just has you in this area, especially with some long-term issue, I, want, I just want to give you three tools to use. First, never quit talking with God. Never. One of the biggest mistakes we Christians make is allowing our sin to drive a wedge between ourselves and God. Sometimes it's, it's guilt. Other times it's frustration, even anger, blaming God he hasn't helped enough to overcome this temptation that we just can't seem to beat. But whatever reason you hear in your head for not praying, it is is a lie. God is your only defense in spiritual warfare, period. You cannot win without him. So if you've stopped praying, start again. And if you're already praying, keep it up. One thing that has helped me when I've struggled with my prayer life is to journal my prayers, that is to, to write them out, at, at least for a season. It slows down my mind so that I can concentrate more fully on what I'm praying and what God is saying in response. Along those same lines, I found praying out loud to be helpful. Find a place where everyone else is not and just talk to God as you would talk to a friend. You may have to whisper if the place isn't absolutely private, but that's okay. God can still hear. The reason for both of these methods is that they, 
at least from, from my standpoint, from my part, my mind has a tendency to race ahead towards 20 different things at the same time, even while I'm trying to devote my time to God. I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll be praying, and I'll suddenly forget what it is I've been praying about. So writing or speaking my prayers forces my mind to wait for the rest of me to catch up. But however you choose to pray to God, choose to just do it and don't give up. Also, get the word in your heart any way you can. Read it, meditate on it, memorize it, listen to it, whatever. But give God's word a chance to take root and live inside you because it's inside you where it has its greatest impact. For me, in addition to daily reading, listening to the Bible, I carry around some 3 by 5 cards. You typically see them kind of sneaking over the top of my pocket. And uh, the reason I have those 3 by 5 cards is I have uh, scriptures that I've written or I've typed. And I've got those on those cards or maybe a sheet of paper so that I... I can take them out in a moment of temptation, a moment of discouragement, just a moment of silence. I can let God remind me of his comfort and his encouragement as I think on those things that Paul was talking about. As my memory has declined, I've also developed what I like to call my daily M&Ms, not the candy, uh, but meditation and memorization. I assign certain scriptures to each day of the week, and every morning I type them out, and I pray as I type. What's amazing to me is that I find scriptures that have been assigned for the day, though set up long in advance, a certain scripture will actually fit perfectly with an issue that I'm experiencing at that very moment. We think that we're in charge. We really do. And a lot of times we think that when we take the word of God, it's just us. But it's not just us. This is not just a book. This is not just a list of truths. This is the living, breathing word of God. And when you read the word of God, it is God sending his word out. And when God sends his word out, according to Isaiah, it always accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it. God knows how to use his word to accomplish what he wants and what we need. But we need to listen. So pray, get the word of God inside your heart and keep yourself accountable to someone. Find a trustworthy, spiritually-minded individual with whom you can freely share what's going on in your life. I always recommend doing this with someone of the same gender as yourself uh, for obvious reasons. But find someone with whom you can share both your praises and your burdens. I've always loved the story of the little girl who was afraid of the dark and one stormy night she cried out to her mom and when her mom heard her cry out she immediately came to her bedside and when she saw how troubled her daughter was uh, she said well honey you don't have to worry because God is always with you 
To which the girl replied, well, I know, Mom, but I need somebody with skin on them. You know, God gave us each other because he knows there's no substitute in times of trouble for someone with skin on them. No substitute at all. You realize Satan tries to isolate us for the very purpose of controlling the things around us and controlling us. Remember the first thing Adam and Eve did when they sinned? They hid. Most people say, well, yeah, they hid from God. No, they hid from each other. Uh, ashamed of their nakedness, a shame they had never experienced before. They covered themselves when there was literally not another human being on the planet. Who were, their, who were they covering themselves from? Each other. Each other. Sin does that. See, it makes us want to hide. It makes us want to cover up, to not allow anyone to see the person we really are, for fear that we will be rejected. And that only serves to increase feelings of loneliness and despair, which makes us even more vulnerable to the temptation that we're trying to conquer. Hear me on this. You are not alone. Whatever temptation you're battling, there is no temptation except what is common to us all. Believe me, you are not only not the only one going through this struggle. You don't have to do this on your own. God gave us each other for a reason. The secret of contentment involves right thinking. It also involves right priorities verse 9 what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things and the god of peace will be with you right thinking should produce right actions but that simply won't happen if your priorities are wrong christian living is not just about being busy it's about being purposeful in doing what we do find what god wants then do it Nothing brings greater satisfaction than knowing that you're living in the will of God. Only doing so can you truly make a difference. And just in case you think I'm only talking to apostles, prophets, and preachers, notice what Paul says about everyday Christians there at Philippi. Verse 10, they'd been concerned for Paul and his needs. Verse 14, as a result of that concern, they had shared in Paul's troubles. Verses 15 and 16, at one point, they'd been the only church supporting Paul and meeting his needs, uh, sending him aid again and again. And I, and I just want to say, understand, he's talking about the church. He's not just talking about the church board. He's talking about the church. I've been around long enough. I've been in ministry 40-some years, and I know I know that if it wasn't for the, for the support of, uh, of families and widows and widowers and, and people in the church, well, the church would just shrivel up. It's about the family of God, not just the head of the family, but the family of God as a whole. Verse 18, they did more than send their stuff. They sent one of their very own. Epaphroditus, to physically help Paul. 
We don't really know much about the folks there in Philippi, but I think it's safe to say that if it wasn't for them, Paul could not have done what he did the way that he did it. No way. They made Paul a priority. And as a result, Paul was genuinely encouraged. The kingdom grew greatly, and their world was changed for the good. You realize much of the problem that we have in the church today can be tied to priorities. You remember the definition I I gave a long time ago of what a priority is. What is a priority? It's what you do. It's not what you say you're going to do. It's not what you know you ought to do. A priority is what you do. It's what you put prior to everything else. Anything else is just talk. How do we determine our priorities? Here's a good starting point, and it's actually pretty simple. Ask yourself, does this matter to God? Does this matter to God? If it does, then it should probably matter to you. And what you'll find is, most often, things that matter to God aren't things at all. What matters to God are people, souls and, of men and women, boys and girls, lost people, saved people, poor people, rich people, black people, white people, yellow, red, and every color in the rainbow people. But here's the bottom line. They're people. When Jesus said, for God so loved the world, he wasn't talking about the planet. He was talking about the people on the planet. And priorities that don't include people, they're wrong. The wrong priorities, at least for the children of God. You understand just how much God could do through you. And I mean you. I'm not talking about that guy, the one next to you. I'm not talking about, you know, one of the church leaders. I'm talking about you. Whoever just heard that word, do you understand what God could do through you that he could not do through anyone else? If what mattered to him day by day mattered to you, if his priorities became yours, here's, I'll just give you one little homework assignment. Let every day, every day begin with a simple prayer. Lord, what do you want me to do? Just try that. Let's, let's, let's say it together. So, uh, Lord, what do you want me to do? Try it again. Lord, what do you want me to do? Just start off with that prayer. And then spend the rest of the day listening for and obeying his answer. When you get on the same page with God, you'll be amazed the difference that you and he can make together. As the hymn writer put it, things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Right thinking, right priorities, one more thing. The secret of contentment involves a right relationship with God. Paul could think what he thought and do what he did because he knew he knew God. He viewed that relationship more important than anything else, and it was the source of everything good. Verse 9, it gave him peace. Verse 10, it brought him great joy. Verse 13, it provided strength to do anything and everything necessary for the king and his kingdom. Paul knew God, and he trusted him to provide whatever he needed. And not just what Paul needed, 
But what was needed for the church at Philippi? For every church, including this one. I love verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice, he says, my God. See, it's personal. My God. He is my God. And when it's personal, it is what it should be. Because that's the only way contentment comes. It comes in a personal relationship. The word we've been using throughout the morning, contentment, in the original language of the New Testament, it means to be possessed of sufficient strength, to have and to be enough. Paul was saying that at every turn, whatever the circumstance, in good times or bad times, God proved he was enough. Times did get bad for Paul. Remember, 2 Corinthians 11, remember just a, one of his short list of the things that he had been through. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure of the, that's on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And yet, he says in our text, middle of verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul is saying, no matter what, God is enough. Because of him, I have all I need. And through him, there's nothing I cannot do. You know what gets missed in this text is that God was enough even when Paul had plenty of stuff. Sounds strange to have to learn contentment when you've got plenty of stuff. But let's face it, our problem is not learning to be content with little, but learning to be content with abundance. The more we have, the more we fight and scratch and claw to keep what we've got. You drop a penny on the ground, and probably no one will notice. You drop a $20 bill on the ground, and people will knock heads trying to get it. The more, the more you have to lose, the harder it is to let go. But if your relationship with God is what it ought to be, you'll find it easier to loosen your grip on things. That's because you know he knows what you need. And you trust he'll keep his promises to supply those needs. When God is enough, and you really believe God is enough, not just lip service. You'll be content. Over 60 years ago, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries were killed trying to reach a previously unreached people group, the Honora tribe of Ecuador. Completely isolated throughout their entire existence, they were known for their vicious attacks on any and all intruders. But Elliot and his team knew that these people needed Jesus. 
So they spent much time and effort learning all they could about the people, their culture. That actually made uh, contact earlier, uh, successfully dropping gifts for the villagers and especially designed bucket. Finally, they felt it was time to meet, to meet the people face to face. But when they landed, they were met with a brutal response. And all five missionaries were speared to death. But in an amazing turn, Elliot's widow, Elizabeth Elliot, she led a team of her own into the region, inspiring others to join her in completing her husband's mission. Eventually, not only was the village reached for Christ, at least one of the men who had participated in, that, in those brutal killings surrendered his life to Jesus and was saved. At the time of his death, many viewed what happened to Elliot and his team as a terrible waste. But I think if Jim Elliot could speak to us today, I think he would, he would say differently. Shortly before he died, he wrote these words in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Elliot did not lose his life. He had already given it to Christ. And compelled by the love of Christ, love that Christ himself had taught him, he gave up his earthly body because he knew that no one, not even the devil himself, could touch his eternal soul. When not even death can shake you, <laughs> that's contentment. And it only comes in Jesus. It only comes in Jesus. Please hear me. This is not a pep talk, folks. This, that's not what this is. And I hope you didn't just come to hear some good words and then smile and go home thinking that all I have to do is just, you know, i got this list of stuff. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ and that alone that will give you hope and contentment and heaven. That alone. I, my plea daily is that if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you will come believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, because that is what He is. That you'll repent of your sins, that you'll turn away from a life of sin to follow Jesus, to do what, to do what He wants. That you would confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, not just once, not just once in front of a group, but, but the rest of your life, constantly telling people that you believe in Jesus. He is your Lord. He is your Savior. And that you would be baptized into Christ, having your sins forever washed away. Nothing magical in the water. I'll, I'll tell you that. You can go up and examine the water. Take a cup home if you want. It's really clean, Chris says. But there's nothing magic in it. Ah, but it is that symbol of the most precious gift ever given to man, the blood of Christ. And it is that blood of Christ and the grace of God that takes away our sins and places them as far as the east is from the west. Anybody here got sin? Anybody? Anybody got sin in their life? Anybody have to? Yeah, 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 it's good. You want to get rid of it? One way. One way. One way. Jesus. 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 That's it. That's it. So, if you're not a Christian this morning, I pray that you'll make today the day of salvation. 
Because that's the best day to be saved. Today. And if you are a Christian, well, that's, let's just go live like that. Okay? Let's go live.